We're in Genesis. Uh, we've, we've finished uh, two chapters so far in like three weeks, right? That feels like a, a pretty good progress. And so here we are on Genesis chapter three. We're going to cover the entire chapter today. But just as a recap, uh, what we've seen so far, no matter what you really believe, no matter what you uh, see as old earth, young earth, whatever it may be that you um, kind of are infatuated with, with Genesis one and two, what we're, hope, we're hoping that you have seen in Genesis one and two is that no matter how you think it got all put into place, uh, a good, gracious, sovereign, powerful God put it all where it goes, according to him. There are no accidents in creation, and he called it all very good. The only thing, in fact, that he called not good was that man was alone, and he fixed that even in and of himself. And so what you have to see here is that a sovereign, powerful, good God is orchestrating everything, and that's an important thing for us to remember especially as we enter into what is the, hands down, the most difficult passage to really fully understand in probably the entire Bible. When you start thinking about a good and powerful God, all of a sudden, uh, with the backdrop of Genesis 3, things change. And you and I are also all of a sudden with Adam and Eve going, is he really powerful? Is he really good? Something has got to give here. If he's good and powerful and sovereign, wise above all, what's going on with the fall? You see, there are also, though, not just good and powerful and far-off adjectives that we would put about God out of Genesis 1 and 2. We'd also find that he also desires to be near. There's an intimacy that comes with the God of the Bible that you can't find anywhere else. That he longs to be with his people. He longs to be with his people, and he has done everything to set up a place where he can perfectly dwell with his creation, particularly the man and the woman. If you remember what Josue preached on last week is that we are his representatives. We are made in his image, and we are called, as the cultural mandate would say, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and rule over it, subdue it. If you remember even further... Chapter 2 ends with, and they were naked and not ashamed. And then chapter 3 happens. Moses is trying to draw us into something crazy that's happening because he just kind of goes right into it when he says, now the serpent. They were naked and unashamed. Now the serpent. Something is about to go terribly awry. But I will say this, right? Genesis 3 helps us understand, although it is a, a, a terrible passage, it is also helpful to help us understand some of the deepest questions that we have throughout any given week. I don't know what questions about life you've been asking this week. Not like, you know, simple questions, but like existential questions. Like, what is the meaning of life? What's going on in this world with coronavirus? What is God up to? Why is there suffering? Some of the questions that I've been asking this week, and I literally have asked these questions this week, and I think the answer is in the fall uh, in Genesis 3. But this is one question I have is, why does Nirvana get more play than Foo Fighters? Foo Fighters is clearly the better band, right? I mean, is anybody with me? Am I alone in this? Yes, okay. Yes, we have two or three people. Excellent. And offended uh, everybody else. That's okay. Um, the other question I have after finishing um, season four of Cobra Kai is, why did I just do that? Um, that's very cringy. Why am I watching this cringy, cheesy, 
Four seasons of it is what I'm doing. There, he was not actually a good actor back in the 80s, and I didn't know that. And I didn't know that. There are, there are things that I'm asking throughout the week, truly, why is Cobra Kai so cringy? Um, but for real, right? it's like we have deep questions that we're asking. Hopefully we're asking them out loud to someone else. Um, why is parenting so difficult? Why is it so difficult to consistently love the people that I really do love? Why is it that work is never satisfied with my effort? It never produces exactly what I'd hoped. All the answers to that are literally found in this chapter and many more. All the questions about what's wrong with this place are found in Genesis 3, which is why simply I titled today, What Went Wrong? And it's not a question. This is what went wrong in Genesis 3. How did sinner into the world? What has gone wrong? Well, here's what we see. What God created, Satan wants to destroy. What God has defined as life and good, Satan wants to kill and define as bad. What God has provided, Satan wants to steal. And I would say, what is the one thing he wants to steal the most? And that is intimate, trusted relationships. Intimate, trusted relationships. Why would I say that? Because the pinnacle of all creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is that the male and the female are naked and they are not ashamed. They are intimate. They are trusted. They are in deep relationship with one another. But now the serpent. Something is going wrong. So I want us to understand on this side of the fall, on this side of that tree... There are three relationships we've got to understand in order for us to flourish in a world that's fallen. Three relationships. You ready for them? It's our relationship to Satan. Notice I did not say our relationship with Satan. Our relationship to him. Our relationship with one another. And our relationship with God. So first, let's unpack the first relationship that we cannot neglect, Christians. I know it's not a fun subject. I understand that it's not something that we typically dwell on is what is Satan up to. But if we're going to be people that flourish in this fallen place, we got to go back to Genesis 3 and understand what his schemes are, what he's up to in this world. There's a few Old Testament passages that help us understand the origin story to Satan. So I don't know about you, but like before the Avengers, there was X-Men. And, and so you used to watch X-Men and it was pretty good until the Avengers came along. It was like, oh gosh, I know. Oh, I remember the X-Men. They're kind of good. But the X-Men, right? And my favorite X-Man was Wolverine. And then you go, you understand like, why is this man so troubled? What's going on with him? There's an origin story to Wolverine that's on Disney Plus. You can watch it if you want. But there's an origin story to Wolverine that helps you understand what is going on with this dude when he shows up with the rest of the X-Men. And I think it's important for us to understand the origin story for Satan. Because all of a sudden, he just shows up in the story. What's the origin story? Well, in Isaiah chapter 14, in Ezekiel chapter 28, there are, there are prophecies about Satan that help us understand what it is and how it is that he came to earth. And what we would find is that Satan was created as the most beautiful, most glorious uh, guardian angel that God would ever create. And yet, in his beauty and in his perfection, the Bible says that he sinned because he wanted to be worshipped as God himself. He wanted glory. 
And so God's punishment for that, because he will not stand in the midst of pride and arrogance, it just won't happen, he kicked him out of heaven, and Satan took with him a third of the angels to the earth. Literally what happened, somewhere in this timeline, we don't really know. But Satan gets kicked out of heaven, and so much so to like Jesus says, he sends out his disciples to go make disciples, and they come back and they're like, Jesus, you'll never believe this, but demons are listening to us. Sickness is fleeing from us. And he goes, okay, yeah, yeah, I saw Satan when he fell from heaven. So there's a time where Jesus was there and he witnessed with his eyes when Satan was cast out of heaven. We have to understand this backstory because all of a sudden he's here. We might wonder, what is he doing in this garden? Well, God kicked him out of heaven and he's been on the earth along with a third of the fallen angels, which we now know as demons, deceiving, killing, destroying, taking away everything that God values. That's the origin story. And so when we see him, it's important for us to understand what we know about Genesis 1 and 2, the kind of God that was revealed there. He's good. He's sovereign. He's powerful. It's important for us to understand that because we're going to be tempted, just like Eve, to start doubting the character of God when we start to see the events unfold. But remember, remember the words of 1 John 1.5, Christian, that we have the value of the full context of Scripture, which says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's not actually talking about light and dark. That's talking about good and evil. He is good, and in Him there is no evil at all. So it's important for us to understand as we unpack Genesis 3, God didn't create this. We, instead, he created Satan as good and Satan rebelled. God didn't create the world that we're in now. He created a perfect world, a good world that we humans corrupted and created to be fallen. Absolutely less than ideal. God created everything and it was good in its original design, but Satan rebelled and was judged. And just like a troubled kid who wants to take everyone else down around him, that's exactly what he is intent on doing in your life. To take you down, to undo God's purposes. Now the serpent was more crafty, more shrewd than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had Made. What we have to understand is that being shrewd or crafty is actually not a bad thing. What makes this bad is his intention. And his intention is to use his knowledge, which is being shrewd or crafty, knowing where the dangers are. You see, Adam and Eve didn't even know there was danger. If you can imagine a, a young child kind of being thrown into an environment that all of a sudden that like it's super dangerous and they don't even know it. And that's exactly where Adam and Eve were. They, they weren't even aware of the danger because why would they? They're in a good and perfect relationship with God and everything is humming along beautifully until the enemy comes along and deceives them. He uses his knowledge of good and evil in order to take down the innocent. But we have a history now that shows us his schemes and I want us to be aware of the enemy's scheme. So right now, if you don't know this, if you're not, if you're not a news watcher like I've become, uh, Russia is posturing against Ukraine, right? 
and, and 100, apparently 100,000 Russian troops are, are right up against the, uh, the border of Ukraine. And we know this because we have satellite imagery that shows exactly what they're doing in the snow. Have you seen these snowy trucks and tanks? And you're like, oh yeah, they're there. How do we know that? Because we can see it. The satellite imagery is helping you see it. And what I want to do is just kind of put a satellite imagery a little bit on what's, what the enemy is doing as he, as he puts his troops right up against our borders. So what's he up to? Well, Genesis 3, verses 2 through 6 give us a really a blueprint for what he's up to in your life right now. Number one, he wants us to doubt God's word. You remember what he says to the woman in verse 2? Excuse me, uh, verse 1. He said to the woman, God, did God actually say, did he really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, he is causing doubt here because the woman actually didn't hear God say it. And you probably haven't heard, haven't seen Jesus, like with your eyeballs. And so the same temptation is going to be for you. Is this really true? Is this, is God's word really, does it really say these things about who God is and about what he's done and particularly about what he wants in your life? Is it really worth all the sacrifice and effort? I mean, for crying out loud, can't we live stream this thing these days? Like it, there is effort, there is cost associated with it. And you might be starting to think, is it worth it? And we start to doubt, is it worth the gathering with the saints? Is it worth getting in community and becoming more like Jesus and repenting amongst one another? Is it worth it? Did God really say? See, doubt in and of itself is not a bad thing, but don't let it stop you. Let it drive you into a more informed faith. That's the beauty of doubt. But too many people go, oh, well, I just have concluded based on my doubts, X, Y, or Z, without any research. And that's a tough place to be. It's a very tough place to be. He wants us to doubt God's word. But secondly, he, will doubt, he wants us to doubt God's consequences. If you kept reading in verse 2 all the way down to 4. And the woman said to the serpent, well, well yeah, we can eat of the, of, the trees, of, the, of, the, uh, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, God definitely says that they're going to die. And now he is calling into question not just God's word, but also the consequences that come with rebellion and sin. And don't we struggle with something very similar? That we just, we talk ourselves into, well, sin's not really that big of a deal. Or we start to talk ourselves into, I'm not really that bad of a person. But friends, there's sins of commission, the things that we do that we know that are wrong. And there are sins of omission. And this is probably where suburbia lands. The sins of omission are the things we know we should do and we don't. That too has the culpability and judgment of sin that we would do if we were to do the worst thing imaginable. We've got to understand that there are consequences when we are living in disobedience to God. He says it right there. You will die and the enemy goes, no, no, no. That God of yours, he don't know. He actually has something up his sleeve. And what is it that's up his sleeve? You see, it's not just God's word. It's not just his consequences, but also his character. If we keep reading in verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die in verse 5. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, now what he's calling into question is that he's holding out on you. The God who created you, he actually has sinned against you, O Eve. You, you don't even know what sin is, but he's sinned against you. He's holding out on you. He's not telling you the full story. And of course, it's a lie. But he lures her, her by doubting God's word, by doubting his consequences, by doubting his character. And little by little, he has convinced her that sin is a good idea. And she saw, it says in verse uh, 6, right? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its, fr of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Little by little, she has been convinced that sin is no big deal. James talks about this in the New Testament. Uh, the book of James in chapter 1, it talks about how each person, in verses 14 and 15 of James chapter 1, it says, each person is tempted when he is lured, when he is enti enticed, by his own desire. And then that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. You know, boundaries are a good thing. Boundaries are a lot where life can be found. And so if you're a student in this room, I want you to just listen for just a moment, okay? Your parents don't hate you. They love you. So when they um, ban TikTok, it's not because they don't hate you, they don't love you. When they keep you from all the fun on Snapchat and on Instagram and on Facebook, they're doing so as if God was in the garden to Adam and Eve. You can do so many things with your life, but not that. And what do you want? That. Why? Because you've got a desire in you. You've got a desire to have fun. To go and do things with your friends. All good things. But your parents know what's on the other end of that. Amen. Your parents know what's on the other end of that. They've gone through all that. They know what happens when you, when you cross the boundaries that God wants you to not cross. They've been there. And they're trying to keep you from all the things. From death. Right? So friends, students, if you're in here and not serving... God has ordained you to be in here, to hear this news. Share it with your friends. It's not that Instagram is bad. It's not that Snapchat and TikTok and whatever the next ludicrous name they come up with with an app is. It's not evil in and of itself, but it's what it leads you to, right? It's the boundary that you're going to cross. If it's not Snapchat or something online, let's just say, like back in the old days, we had curfews. Maybe you still have curfews. I'm not there yet with my kids, but I'm sure I'll get there soon. But there was an old, like in the old days, it was a curfew. Your parents knew that they put a curfew on you because they knew at past midnight, past 10, past whatever time that was, nonsense is going to happen. <laughs> right? That's the boundary. It's not that they, they, there's some magical number at midnight that you turn into a witch. It's because they know you're going to turn into a moron soon. All right. Now, this is not in my notes, and I need to return. 
but it's true. Friends, students, like, I'm just, like, make your life easier. Don't make your parents' lives easier. Make your life easier. They're keeping you from a lot of trouble, and they know. They know what's on the other end. So I'd ask you, where are you today? Do you believe in God's lot for your life? Do you believe that God has set you up with the parents that you have, with the wife or husband that you have, with the kids that you have, with the job that you have, and the place where you are? Do you believe in the sovereignty and goodness of God? Or are we trying to see something and take it? See, that's, that's the great temptation of the 21st century, of all centuries, that we would see things. And all of a sudden, it produces in us a coveting. And all of a sudden, that coveting then produces consumption. I mean, look at what we are attached to. We talked about this in staff meeting. What are you attached to throughout the week? Your phone. You're looking at something. Your eyes are gazing on something. There, 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 there's a gateway there into looking at something and what happens in your heart. You probably don't know unless you've taken a fast from social media in a little bit. There's coveting. There's judgment. There's self-righteousness. All getting played out within your heart as you look as you covet, as you start to want to consume a life that God didn't give you. He gave it to somebody else. And praise God for that. What protection, what, what beauty, what goodness is being displayed in the things that he has given you. You see, that's the beauty of the garden. Is that, no, no, I can eat of any tree, but just not that one. You see, Satan wants her to think, man, he's so restrictive. This God, he's holding out on you. I wouldn't need to just give you all the trees. Well, he has. It's not the one that's going to lead to death. So I wonder where we are in this journey. All right, so looking at this, right, that's the first relationship. Our relationship with or to Satan. But of course, Genesis 3 doesn't stop there, right? It goes on to unpack two, at least two other relationships that I want us to understand. Number two is our relationship with others right? The main enemy of intimacy, and I want I'll just jump to this, the main enemy of intimacy between others is the very thing that Jesus came to destroy, and that is this that we find in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and what did Adam and Eve do? The man and the woman, the very first man and the woman, they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. This is what is known in theological circles as self-righteousness. Is you are trying to cover your own sin. And we, just like the male and the female in the garden, we, just like Adam and Eve, will try to take temporary measures for an eternal problem. Temporary measures of a fig leaf. If you don't know this about a fig leaf, they were very big, but they also were highly perishable. And so they were gone within a day. And so Adam and Eve's first instinct is to take whatever tree is there and start to cover themselves because they realize that they're naked and there's shame associated with that. And so they want quick cover. They're not really all that uh, interested in eternal covering. They just want to hide. They want cover. They want to literally justify themselves or make themselves as they once were, unashamed, righteous, good. And so they take this temporary measure for an eternal problem and they will have to do it again and again and again and again unless God intervenes. 
See, here's the deal, right? Is that when we, when we cover ourselves, when we put fig leaves over our own sin, a covering that can never last, what we'll end up doing is that when someone else eventually sees our sin, when someone else eventually looks at the things that are imperfect in us, we start to blame that person. And we know that because that's exactly what the man and the woman did. Look at verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of, the, of which I have not commanded you to eat? And the man said, well, the woman, I don't know if you know this, but uh, you gave me this woman, God, and she turns out to be a deceiver. I don't know if you knew that, but she's the problem here. I'm fine. You, I'm good. But you did this to me. I don't know if you've ever done this in your marriage or in your work relationships or in your parenting. Lord, if you could just like make this child not so stubborn, I would be fine. I mean, literally yesterday we're, we're coaching softball and I heard one of the coaches, hey, um, if you want us to quit yelling at you, quit being dumb. Yeah, I don't know if that is the garden, but there it is. And then that same person goes, you probably could preach a sermon on this. And I was like, I think I will. <laughs> it's in us. It's totally in us, right? We start to blame God for his provision. And what he gave as a gift, we now count as a curse. Because now you're pointing out flaws in me that I'm not ready to have pointed out in me. And if it's not enough, the woman then adds on to that and says this. Then the Lord God said to the woman, okay, all right, Adam, you want to blame the woman? Let me go to the woman. He says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, this serpent that you created, I don't know if you know this, but you made this, this serpent. Anyways, he deceived me, and all I did was eat. I took, I, took, I took it and I ate it. I don't know about you, but that's a fig leaf, right? We just, I, just, I, just, I don't know what the big deal is. I just took a fruit. And if you think about it, it is just a fruit. It's not like we see this grand sin of murder or something like that. It is an eating of something that was forbidden. But when we start adding on to our actions, well, I was just kidding. I was, it was just this little thing. Understand the root word is justification. I'm justifying myself by, by minimizing my action. It's all right here with Adam and Eve, right? Our relationship to others has been absolutely forever changed because of Adam and Eve's sin, and therefore everything is off. And we start to cover ourselves, and the way that we cover ourselves then is a means of self-righteousness. And your way becomes the only way. Self-righteousness has the voice of, I would never do that. I, I am now the standard of what should be done. Or, I do it this way, and you should too. I have become the standard of what should be done. Hey, do y'all remember when social media was fun? Remember that? It was a fun time. We used to see images like the one that's going to be shown here uh, about a dress. You guys remember this? You guys remember this dress? Yeah, yeah? You good? So um, that was fun when social media was an enjoyable place. I remember that time too. Um, it was before the pandemic.
have fun with now is the norm. You see, friends, when we are confronted with our sin and we use anger as a diversion to not dig in, it's a fig leaf. When we use sarcasm to deflect, fig leaf. When we use deception over confession, it's a fig leaf. When we use humor as a weapon against honesty, it's another perishable fig leaf. And these fig leaves are found in the garden, and before long we'll be looking for more leaves, more tools in the belt to try and figure out how it is that we can avoid ownership. Avoid that it wasn't the woman, it wasn't the servant, it was me. Perhaps you're in the room and you need to confess. Perhaps you need to own your sin because what we're going to find out in this next relationship is that God's not done with sinners. Oh, he's far, far not done with sinners. So I would just ask as we move into that, on what do you rely for being right before God and others? Or better yet, what weapons do you use in order to not fully repent of self-righteousness? See, the good news is that God does not leave us in that place of despair and of deflection. No, instead, he comes and he is on the move. Look at our final relationship. If we're going to understand any relationships, our relationship to Satan, let's flourish by understanding his schemes that he wants to deceive us and to go against boundaries that God has set up to be holy and good. Now, let's also flourish by understanding that the other person is not the issue. The issue is me. That I have a righteousness that I want to hold on to and cover up. But instead, God has come, and this is the third relationship, to make us right when we fell short. Well, how does he do that? What posture does he have? Well, we find out, don't we? Look at verse, oh, what is it, nine. He comes in the cool of the day. And the Lord God is among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Yoo-hoo! Where are you? He's not condemning Adam and Eve. He's inviting. This week, my son, my precious little son, got sent home with a disciplinary note. Seven years old, old little Moses. I told the, the, the moms at the bus stop, I was like, no, nah, Moses is grounded today. And they were like, sweet little Moses? Oh, yes, sweet little Moses. He's sweet until he's not. He was apparently in gym, and um, somebody cut in line, and um, uh, he put him in a headlock straight away. Okay? Now, as a dad, I tried not to be proud, all right? But Coach G, who's a friend of mine, he called me here, and he goes, hey, I just got to let you know, got to send Moses home with a disciplinary note. This is what happened. I was like, who's this kid? Oh, I can't tell you that. All right, I'll find out when he gets home. He tells me all the things, and I'm like, okay, cool. Moses gets off the bus, and he acts like he is good to go. Moses, how was your day at school, buddy? It's good. It's great. It was great? Yeah, yeah, it was great. Anything happen at school? Anything you want to tell me? Oh, well, I did get a disciplinary note. Oh, okay. It's the same thing. I'm not here to condemn him, to to condemn Moses. God is not here to condemn us. Matter of fact, John 3 says we're already condemned because of what happens in Genesis Genesis 3. Instead, what he will do and what he consistently does is call you into confession. 
call you into personal repentance. Because if you notice what Adam and Eve do, and I don't, we don't have time to read it all the way through, but they do say, for all their self-justifying, they both say, I ate. I did it. I may be blaming somebody else for what I did, but I did it. And that's, of course, Moses goes, well, I mean, brother cut in line. What do you want me to do, Dad? I was like, well, did you, did you, call, did you tell him you can't cut in line? No. Did you tell the teacher of your problem? No. You just went straight in for the headlock. Yep. He goes, it's really not that big a deal, Dad. And I was like, no, no. It definitely is. But at least he was able to confess. And I said to him, and I would say to you, as, as a representative of God on this stage, that it would, the consequences would have been far greater if he was not clean with me, if he didn't confess his sin with me. So he's already run through his consequences. But nonetheless, I cannot reiterate enough that everything changed at the tree and at the fall. And God has come to invite us, invite us, not condemn us, into a restored relationship with him. Now I had to skip all the judgment. Because you might think to yourself, what kind of a God enters into, back into this place that he created that was perfect with his perfect human beings? What is his reaction going to be? Number one, it's invitational to sinners. If you're scared of God, I can, I can almost guarantee you it's because of what somebody else said about God and not because of the God actually in the Bible. He's invitational to sinners. He's drawing you near to himself. But that doesn't go without some judgment. What we skipped was the judgment, right? In, in, in verses 14 through 19, he judges the serpent. He actually curses the serpent more than judgment. He curses the serpent and he said, there's going to come a day in verse 15. Let's read it because Josue is going to be disappointed if I don't. Let's read it in verse 15. God's judgment cursing to the enemy. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first gospel. This is the first promise of this Redeemer that is yet to come. It is the first mention of something about to be reversed course right here after the garden. Or right here after the fall. But there is judgment. The woman will suffer pain and now has a desire to rule over her husband. Not that anybody knows anything about that in your marriages. There's a desire there that is a part of the curse of the fall to rule over the husband. And the equal part of that is that the, the male will rule instead. No longer it is a committed partnership working side by side. Now it's wonky and it's competitive. It's part of the fall. Why is your marriage so difficult at times? Adam and Eve, these women, this man that you put here, because of you, because of your nature. But he doesn't leave us in judgment. No, he protects us by sending us out of the garden, away from the second tree that was there, which was the tree of life. He didn't want us to be eternally dead and separated from him. He protects us by sending us out and putting cherubim there with flaming swords. And that's all weird imagery. But we see it again in the temple on the curtain between the Holy of Holies and everything else. There's these cherubim there separating the holy presence of God from sinners. So they don't kill themselves forever. And then, of course, finally, our God, who does dish out consequences for sin, 
prior to or, or contrary to popular belief of the enemy. He does dish out judgment. He will. He must. He's holy. But he doesn't leave us there. Because for wherever there is judgment, grace is there all the more. You see it in verse 15. But you, if, you, if you don't have trained eyes, you might miss it at the end of the chapter where God provides animal skin. He provides for Adam and Eve. Look at it in verse 20. Excuse me. Verse 21. And the Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They were covering up with temporary means of cover that actually cost nothing. But there has always been a great sacrifice, a blood sacrifice for sin. And it happened right there in Genesis 3. And it points to the greater sacrifice of Jesus that he would cover over your sin far greater than you could ever cover your own sin. That he would do more than just cover your sin. He would take it away. He would take it away. Not just cover it, but remove it all together to the point where the Bible says he remembers it no more. He no longer counts it against you, O oh sinner. How great is our God? Well, we can look at Genesis 3 and go, man, we deserve Far worse. We didn't deserve any promise of a redeemer. We didn't deserve, Adam and Eve didn't deserve a covering. And yet God in his grace continues to stoop towards sinners to provide that which we cannot provide for ourselves. And what a great picture it is of the grace that is found in Jesus. You see, Paul mentions this in Romans 5. If you want to do a good study, read Genesis 3 and then go read Romans 5. He says this in one verse, and then I'll be done. Maybe. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more, much more will those who receive, not take like Eve, receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, whatever was lost at the fall, whatever you've lost because of sin, whatever the enemy has taken from you in his grand scheme to come against that which God called good, much more will it be restored in Jesus. Much more. So friends, as we end, perhaps you're here and you've come to church and you've got some big questions about good and evil. I can assure you, you are not alone. I can assure you that the losses that you've incurred in life, that the difficulties and the sufferings, I can guarantee you, you've got, you've got company in this room. You've got people in your neighborhood group that will walk with you as you walk with them through their sufferings and through their difficulties, through their losses. I'll also say that there are no real tidy answers to suffering. There's no real tidy answer with a, with a bow on top about why there's evil I mean, even if you look at Genesis 3, you have to ask yourself the question, why didn't God intervene? We don't know. Would have been easier. Apparently he's not interested in that. We could have just started over. Well, thank God he didn't. And he promised something greater in his son Jesus. What Adam and Eve lacked is what we have. Do you know the one thing they lacked in the garden? Grace. They had law. 
They had don't do it. They knew not the freeing reality of grace, of forgiveness. You do. At least it's available to you. So perhaps you're here, you're asking these big questions, you're not alone. Perhaps you're not, you're not struggling with the big questions, maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you have taken that which is not your own. I want to invite you, confess, repent, find someone in the room today. I'll be here in front if you don't know of anybody. Proverbs 28 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Mercy is available if you're dealing with some sin. Perhaps you need to confess, just like Adam and Eve, that you, you ate, and yet mercy is available. Perhaps you're not struggling with big questions or big sins. Perhaps you just don't know Jesus. Come to church, and you leave. Man, my invitation, just like God's invitation, is no matter where you are, His arms are open, and He's inviting you to trust Him in the promised one who would defeat the snake forever, who did more than cover your sin, but removed it through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Perhaps you have believed that God has been holding out on you and that he's not good or he's not wise or he's not trustworthy. I would just say, I mean, today, if you're listening to that and that's where you're at, today is your day to come and receive mercy, forgiveness, and grace that's found only in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have not left us on our own. You've not left us on our own to continue to blame one another, to continue to hide from you. You're big enough for our big questions. And though we may not always receive the answers that we'd hoped for, you call us to trust you. You call us into something greater than actual certainty or, or, or logical, rational sense somehow. The thing that's greater for our souls, the thing that's greater for us is the same thing that you established in the garden, and that is a loving, trusting, intimate relationship with you. So restore the trust that we once lost if we're struggling with anxiety or depression or, 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 or sickness or difficulty or loss in this room, may we not give in to the lie that you're not good or somehow unable to stop these things. But may we believe the truth that you're working together all things for the good of those who love you. We do not understand good. We may not understand all that. But Lord, I pray that we would land in a place of deep trust. Deep surrender. And may what flow out of that surrender is not a self-righteousness, but a belief in a good and heavenly king who came to make us righteous. Help us respond now in song. 
I pray, Lord, for our kids that are going to wrap up their lessons. I pray, Lord, that, oh, Holy Spirit, you would speak to our children. Pray for the students that are serving today. Realize that as inconvenient and as difficult as it is to serve on a Sunday morning, you stooped far greater to serve them. May we see your goodness in all these things. Help us, Lord, as we journey out of this place in just a few moments. But first, help us respond in song. In Jesus' name, amen.